Welcome to On the Wet Coast, a podcast about sexuality and ethical non-monogamy of every variety. We talk polyamory and swinging, monogamish and open relationships, from dirty, dirty sex to heartbreak. We share our personal experiences and philosophy, observations and theories, what works for us and where we fucked it right up. Join us on the Wet Coast. People whose identities don't conform to the norms within a community often feel isolated from that community. Figuring out how to fit in when you don't hew to the line of a group is an incredible challenge. Bisexuals don't always feel at home in LGBTQ community and are often deliberately isolated from it. Switches don't always feel at home in kink community, since many in BDSM appear to think you need to pick a side and stick with it. Multiracial people don't feel entirely at home in either racial group. Not being specifically one or the other means they often feel outside both. Polyamorous people who have casual sex or different relationship structures can be judged and considered not to be truly polyamorous. Finding a place, like geek community, where many of the circles of interest intersect allows many of us to feel at home. On this episode of On the Wet Coast, Flick and I, Cat Start, are discussing fitting in with our special guest, Janet Rose. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash on the wet coast. You can tweet along with us, hashtag on the wet coast. You can follow us on Twitter, at wet coast cat, that's cat with a K, at serious flick, at on the wet coast, at sharp sweet Bella. Read blogs, reviews, and more, www.onthewetcoast.com. Email us comments or questions at contact at onthewetcoast.com. And if you like what we're doing, please rate us and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite platform. It makes a huge difference for us. Thanks. Welcome, Janet. Thanks for joining us on the Wet Coast today. Thanks for having me. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I go by, you know, my name is Janet Rose. Um, some folks in the poly and kink communities know me as Bella Rosa. And I have been involved in, geez, poly uh, for at least 13 years, oh. kink for almost as long. Um, although I probably was kinky long before I realized I was poly. Okay, yeah. Um, and then I've been bisexual, um, and I've identified as bisexual since around the same time. But of course, you know, like most bi folks had a bunch of inklings toward it, uh, long before I actually ever came to terms with it. And, um, and I'm married, uh, have, uh, been married for over 15 years and my, uh, my other partner I've been with for nine years. Wow. So, and, and I have two kids, uh, two teenage sons. Um, so yeah, that's a pretty intense life. Yeah. And, um, professionally, I am an attorney and a mediator and I work in disability law right now, but, uh, have actually been doing also a lot of education, uh, around, uh, conflict resolution, um, kind of reducing the shame structures that we have in relationships and things like that. That's where I like to focus on when I'm teaching. So where's the best place that listeners can, uh, can find you online to, uh, to follow your, uh, uh your activities? <laughs> so best place to find me is Sharp Sweet Bella on Twitter, uh, Sharp Sweet Bella on Instagram as well. And then my blog is also sharpsweetbella.com. Nice consistency. We like it. <laughs> yes, yes. Not a very popular name, which I'm actually very grateful for. So. 
I I need to like track down that other cat Stark who's stealing that <laughs> Twitter name and doesn't use it. Has tweeted like seven times. And... Well, you know, it's probably. I wonder if it's a Game of Thrones thing. Likely. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but um, you know, the that that cat is with a C, so from Game of Thrones. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we're uh, we're here to talk about fitting in and um you know and, and i'm guessing that that all of us have kind of felt in the um in the various uh, you know open and sex positive communities that sense of of feeling you know left out of not fitting in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and that's sort of how we even came to the topic is janet and i were chatting on twitter one day and and just realized that our conversation could definitely be a lot more than the conversation we were having. And mm-hmm. there was so much of the, Oh my God. Yeah. I totally get that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Cause I, um, and I sit at the intersection of a lot of different identities um, because, you know, not just bisexual and polyamorous, but I'm also a switch. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, I, I think whenever I start talking about my different identities, people's minds start going, well, but, 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 but yeah. <laughs> whose side are you on? Um, yeah. And I'm also I'm a half Mexican and I'm half white. So that um, that plays into some of my identities as well. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we start talking about the sexuality piece of it? Sure. Um, and, you know, as a as a fellow bisexual who, you know, probably started fairly similarly, like not really understanding even what that was until I sort of got older and realized like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but even though I've been quite open about it with so many of our friends for a very long time, you know, I don't really get included in any queer events, you know, mm-hmm. and again, being married to a man, I understand why you know, appearance wise, I, I come across as a straight person, but even people who know I'm not a straight person, you know, don't include me in things uh, for queer people. Right. And that happens to me too, because I'm also married to um, cisgendered men. And well, and my other partner is male as well. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, even though I have a girlfriend, she and I don't spend a whole lot of time together, because she has her own separate family. Um, and, and and two male partners as well. So uh, we've definitely faced a lot of that where we, you know, we don't get invited to as many events or when we're invited to events, you know, we're kind of introduced almost as if we're the de facto straight couple, Um, you know, and, and when she and I go to events together, um, I think because we, we usually end up having at least one of our other partners in tow, um, it's sort of like, oh, how cute they're experimenting yeah. <laughs> type of thing. And I'm just yeah. like, no, we've both been pretty solid in our sexuality for a long time. Um, but, you know, just the opportunities to attend events together and alone is usually very few and far between. And when we do, you know, it tends to be more uh, female centric events. Mm-hmm. So we blend in a little bit better at those events anyway. Um, but we still don't get read as being bisexual. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I sort of found until, you know, we were bringing our girlfriend to events that, you know, I suddenly kind of had like lesbian cred. Um, right. It's like, <laughs> well, here's an example of a person who's pussy a munch on a regular basis. You know? <laughs> like, um, it just like, 
you know, and I, and well, even and once I got the queer haircut. Yeah, the queer haircut made a big difference. It made a huge difference. And like suddenly it was like, oh, yeah, maybe you actually are as opposed to like, oh, yeah, you're just saying this thing. Um, well, yeah. And I think there's a lot of pressure on us to prove yeah. that we are bisexual. And yet, if I were to really, truly prove that, I'd have to have sort of all my partners together in one space, which we do on our Geek Hive Nights, but Geek Hive Nights don't count because these are people I'm inviting to my house. Um, we host these parties that are for our geeky friends. And so... That's the only time that you're going to have like all of us in the same space together to kind of prove that, yes, I am. But then you run into the poly problem of, well, you're bisexual. So therefore you're also, you know, you can't commit and all of this other stuff um, that kind of goes along with being bi. But there's a lot of pressure on us to prove uh, that we're bi, you know, to be out with our same sex partners more often um, to prove that we're not really straight masquerading as as by well there's it, it's it's funny you, you sort of you know you talk about the the perception of um you know of bisexual people being unable to commit you know which in the past was also you know one of the the um the things kind of you know wielded as a as a cudgel against uh homosexual people in general yeah. um but you know, but you, you often see those, uh, those sort of, you know, memes and dispelling myths about bisexuality, you know, about, you know, well, you know, it's, um, we're not, um, you know, we're not into threesomes. We're not into, you know, uh, we're not, we're not, uh, you know, promiscuous and none, none, none. and it's like, well, some bisexual people are right. Like yeah. every, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and so sometimes people, um, in, you know, in an effort to, to dispel, uh, you know, stigma and stereotypes will sometimes, you know, throw other people under the bus. Um, it, you know, and, and so sometimes there's kind of like this sex negativity that gets thrown around and, and, you know, and cause some bisexuals are promiscuous or into, into group sex and like me. Yay! <laughs> well, and so. I- Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go. I was just going to say, you know, and I think, um, you know, so that increases the shame that bisexual folks end up feeling um, because, you know, and, and for me, I come at it from a place of if you've opened up your relationship, um, because I know a lot of folks who are bi, uh, myself included, who use polyamory or swinging or any of these other types of non-monogamy in order to be able to really live what they feel to be an authentic life. Um, you know, for example, my partner, uh, who I call Warrior on uh, my blog, he... Um, he he always feels like he does really need a balance of masculine and feminine energy. And so for him, being poly, being open is a way for him to be authentic to himself without having to sacrifice or choose a side or anything like that. And I, you know, I see those memes all the time. And I really want to kind of scream back with, there are those of us who have found that non-monogamy is is acceptable and agreeable to us. It still doesn't mean I'm, I, it still means I'm not going to sleep with you. You know, <laughs> like, you know, there's, don't assume that just because yeah. I'm into non-monogamy means that I'm going to, to sleep with you. But um, by the same token, I feel like, you know, you're cutting off your nose to sweat your face. Um, that 
where we counter these, you know, cheating myths and everything like that about bisexuality, you know, and the myths themselves are dangerous and destructive. Um, and there are plenty of bisexual folks who find, you know, authentic happiness in monogamy. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Like, I, I'm all for anything that you have come up with that is self-actualized. Um, but don't throw the rest of us under the bus mm-hmm. because your choice and your agreements with your partner or partners is different than what mine looks like. You know, both are still authentic. Po- both are still wonderful. And, you know, and, and that assumption of promiscuity um, really denies, I think, the authentic nature of, of really coming to terms with your own sexuality and having those conversations with your partner. I think uh, I think sometimes it it kind of comes from a place of you know of not wanting to differ from the baseline status quo in more than one way. Yes, and you see this in a lot of communities where it's like you know okay we're this but we're not this and this and this right, right. and you know so it's 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 like you know I'm bisexual but you know I'm not I'm you know I'm not a pervert or you know um we're uh, you know, we're, we're into kink, but there's no sex or we're, you know, we're swingers, but there's no threatening feelings going on. Right. So, you know, it's, it's often, you know, kind of, it's like trying to reduce the amount of threat there is to muggles by, <laughs> um, by like only deviating in one specific way. It's like, this is not that threatening. Yeah. Inclusion through exclusion. Yes. Um, you know, that see, 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 I'm a part of your group because I'm not these other things that you also find problematic. Yes. And, and it's cool. Like if, if you aren't those things, that's, that's fine. There should be a place for you, but there should be also be a place for all the people that, that still have to check off all those other things yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. On the sexuality spectrum, uh, you know, bisexual people often find themselves as orphans because they, um, you know, they're, they're not, um, you know, they're not always very included in the LGBT community. And, but of course, they're also not heterosexual. So they're kind of, you know, in a way, it's almost like they, they end up disqualified from, from, uh, from both communities. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there's a, you know, if you're not our definition of what this should be, of what LGBT should be, um, then you're just the default, yeah. you know, we're just going to lump you back in with all of these other groups. And, and I think, you know, that really harms um, folks who are in a questioning phase. Um, or in a phase of transition in their life, you know, I, I tend to view sexuality as very, very fluid and I could be totally into women for a few years and then, you know, meet a a man that I just fall in love with. And I would love to be able to transition between all those different relationships and all those different feelings without feeling like I'm abandoning one group in favor of another. Um, when all are still who I am and it's all still a part of where, where I live. Yeah. And I, and I definitely get the, the whole like idea of passing privilege and that I haven't mm-hmm. had to live as a lesbian woman and face mm-hmm. all of the stigma that is associated with that. You know, I get mm-hmm. the safety of being married to a guy and living our happy little safe life. And even though in Canada and particularly in Vancouver, where we are, is an incredibly safe place to be queer, 
you know, there, there's still stigma involved in that. And I, I get that my lived experience is incredibly different than that of my lesbian and gay friends. Um, but you know, I'm here too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and one thing that I would add too is, you know, I think there's not enough recognition for the stigma that we endure. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, I get the passing privilege as well. And I want to give a lot of voice to that. But on the converse end, you know, I think um, folks who are on the L and the G end of the spectrums um, don't, don't have to have their identity. You know, they, they can affirm that identity and have people visually identify them as, as who they are and have that match. Whereas we, you know, in order for me to really truly be representative of my bisexuality, I'd have to have both of my partners. And then again, we get into that same problem of if I have both of my, both my female and my male partner with me, you know, let's not exclude either, you know, the folks who are um, gender fluid and, yeah. and who, and who love to play with that because I'm deeply attracted to them as well. Um, in order to really truly represent who I am and have people visually identify me that way, um, it creates even more problems than it solves. And so that lived experience is also not the same as mine. Um, and I, I recognize that when I show up with one of my male partners, um, that I'm just going to be as, you know, immediately read as straight. And, and I get that because I can go to the movies with him. Um, and no one's going to look at me differently. And, you know, and Denver's a pretty inclusive community too. Um, and a pretty safe community to be out in and a very active queer community here. Um, but, but yeah, there, I mean, there is something to be said about, you know, the converse of that, um, that there, the chances of a gay man's identity being erased, um, are far less yeah. <laughs> than, than yours or mine. Um, because that happens to us so often. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of these studies have shown that, you know, the, the mental health outcomes um, are, are so much more dire for folks who are bisexual, because I think we're constantly in this place where we're either forced to choose, or we're forced to have to continue to identify ourselves and continue to make ourselves visible and continue to make ourselves known. And I would love to see that recognition too, that, um, that I can't just show up someplace and someone will correctly identify me as bi unless I'm wrapped in a bi flag. Yeah. Um, and even then. Hair dyed the, the bi colors. And, <laughs> right, yeah. right. You know, and, you know, I have the gray hair, but that's, that's about as far as I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I laughed at, at one of the pride, um, events I was at last year and almost none of my lesbian friends were dressed in pride kind of gear. They were just dressed like them because they are immediately identifiable as lesbian. Um, whereas I was in the, you know, the queerest things I could find and the brightest and like the layers and the tutu and the stripes and the, you know, because it's totally that nope, see, get it, get it. I'm queer too. Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> exactly. You know, jumping up and down and screaming my bisexuality because it's just not immediately evident. Well, well, pride pride is a um, is a very uh, it, it's it's often very bi exclusionary. Yeah, and, yes. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen 
a bi flag in the Vancouver Pride Parade. Yeah, and and a you know friend of ours had approached. I think it was the Toronto Pride. You know, I you know asking about. Um, uh, I can't remember the exact context, but you know about sort of you know uh, bi context in in the in Pride, and the response back was that uh, allies are welcome. <laughs> yep. And I, you know, and we had all that issue with uh, London Pride, uh, where not one bi group was included. Um, this and and that was this past year. And mm-hmm. you know, considering the history of Pride and and I think the rich diversity that they have always aimed for, bi always sem- seems to be an afterthought. And um, in fact, uh, there's a group in Denver called Paves. I can't remember what it stands for. I hate. I, hate myself for that but um but they uh in their history it says you know as you know paves arose from the frustration in the status quo pride fest uh 2015 in denver was the final straw um when we asked vendors about bisexual representation we were cursed and yelled at Um, that's when we decided to make some changes for pride fest 2016 we held fundraisers to raise money to build a float and they were actually very very present at this year's pride i was really glad to see them they were kind of close by to the polyamory booth and the leather booth which tends to be like it was like janet central (laughs) right there like all the groups that i'm involved in that i love were all sort of situated in the same place but other than, you know, I think some homemade crafts that they made, you know, like they were making some keychains and some, you know, crocheted stuff. They they have been really working very hard to create a sense of community, doing by speed dating and all this other stuff, which I think is super cool. Um, we still, you know, I still have yet to see much representation in some of our um, local publications and some of our um the center is is sort of you know we call it the center here in denver um is our lgbt group and i remember uh i was on a lgbt bar association uh i was on their board for a little bit and there were two of us two bi women who were on the group and both of us both felt like we constantly had to establish our cred um even in a professional organization that we had to remind everyone that, hey, bisexuals exist. And yeah, we're both married to men, but yeah, we're still here. And and it was like we got a pat on the head sometimes. Yeah. Um, and that's with a, within a professional organization. And that that just sort of – I sadly, I've kind of come – I won't say complacent, but I've just grown to to expect that and to expect that I'm going to have to demonstrate and perform my bisexuality in some way in order to feel like I'm included. But even with that, even if I can establish um, some realistic like, hey, Janet really is bi, um, that then there's still that stigma. Yeah. Um, that, and it's still, it's an uphill battle all the time. Like maybe there should just be a certification body, right? Like, <laughs> um, you know, you can, you can just say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a certified bisexual. Yeah. Um, here's, here's, you know, show, show your papers. Yeah. You show your papers. Here's my association right. card. So, you know, and, and then, and then people would go, oh, okay. So you're, you know, you're, it's not just a phase. Yeah. I could maybe get a stamp card for yeah. like, especially at desire. I'd get a lot of stamps <laughs> For like all the all the pussy I like and all the women I like. Yeah, um, yeah. So I've just... I've done my time. I've done my duty. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. And the the you know maybe we could call it platinum star, uh, <laughs> because I'm so sick of the gold star standard. Because I I get that sometimes. Uh. And and 
Fortunately, I think there's enough out by folks that I don't run into this very often, not as often as I think some of my partners have uh, within the gay community. And and this badge of honor of I'm a gold star gay, like, honey, that's great for you. I appreciate that. But now you make me feel dirty. Um, and, and in the leather community, we've seen that too, where like someone hosted a party where it was like, um, all pig, no fish, um, a very subtle dig at those who screw women. Um, and, and it pissed off a lot of people because actually, you know, our, our leather community, I think uh, kind of tends toward more toward queer, um, which I, I tend to use queer as more of a very inclusive, you know, you have to kind of prove your cred by being activist, uh, <laughs> that it's, it's an earned label in some ways for me. Um, but it tends to be a little bit more queer friendly in that respect of, you know, we're going to recognize these things, but then you have these old school, old guard folks who are throwing these parties and it's just, it's really, it's a really sad commentary on, you know, if you've touched pussy as a man, then, you know, you're tainted. Um, and I saw another thing about a dick stained vagina, um, somewhere else. And I'm just like, wow, you know, all these implications that if you have screwed someone of the opposite sex, that you are therefore dirty and tainted um, is really, really depressing. And so, yeah, I feel like I should have a punch card like, hey, I have screwed enough women to qualify. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just with a a quick little note, and then I think we can segue, like talking Uh about the the leather group, we can segue into kink. Um, I have heard platinum star is used for gay men who were born by C-section. I think um, oh my Dan God. <laughs> Savage was talking. I think his husband, uh, Terry, um, is considered platinum because he's never been anywhere near a woman's vagina. So, yeah. so what, would, what would a gold star bisexual be? I don't think there's such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you, you're equally perfectly attracted to 50-50. You, yeah. you have slept with exactly the same number. Yeah. And I'd so lose. Yeah, I think most of us would. All right. Well, let's let's talk about the kink community because that's another oh, place um, where I, I, too, identify as a switch and often just feel, well, I mean, for so many reasons feel out of place in that community but but the switch personality is definitely part of that do you want to talk a bit about your experience in that janet oh yeah um so i i also am a switch and and it's funny because i've had probably more experience on the sub and bottom end of things than i have as a top i'm starting to kind of grow into myself as a top and not comfortable yet with you know dominant um and using that term but you know it's it's interesting i one of my uh, very first doms, you know, when I first became Polly, uh, when we broke up, well, actually, when we got together, he had a, a rule of no switches, which I thought was weird. Um, because my experience as a switch is I can very easily fit into either role. You know, there's some that, you know, just really depends on the dynamic. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to be very relativistic w- with my relationships yeah, where for sure. it's sort of like, you know, the dynamic that organically grows out of my connection with someone is the one that I run with. Um, I don't try to force anything. So, you know, I, I 
really kind of try to stay away from folks who do try to force me into any one box. And maybe that's the Sagittarius in me, um, just not wanting to be tied down. Um, but I like being able to reflect where my mood is. And I like being able to play with where, um, with where that dynamic just sort of organically flows. And so at the time when I first started exploring kink, I was definitely more on the submissive end of things. But it didn't mean that I didn't also like the power play of being on top. And I and I like actually being able to get into the juice and the meat of that and really be able to play with all these different dynamics all at the same time. And that's what I find the most fulfilling about kink for myself is is being able to truly be myself and let go and surrender and even surrender even when I'm in that top space of of being able to go with that flow and, and really nurture that dynamic with action and and whether it's sex and whether it's play whether it's you know flogging or you know sensation play or whatever i love being able to to roll with that you know to the point where i kind of earned a reputation of topping from the bottom <laughs> all the time mm-hmm. and it's you know it's partly because I, again, I just don't like being confined to any one role. You know, I'm not just one thing. I'm not just a submissive. I am not just um, a seductress. I'm not just any of these things. I am all this multifaceted everything and switching gives me the freedom to really be that. Yeah. I think, I think the, this uh, sort of switch phobia uh, <laughs> it's uh I've noticed that there's kind of a, a perception of what being dominant is, right? And so I think that, um, that if you're a switch, then you couldn't possibly be a real dominant. Yeah. And right. you couldn't possibly be a real sub. And so it, it's kind of like, um, I, I don't know whether the, the idea is that, you know, the energy will be wrong or that, you know, that, you, you know, you might, you might decide you, you want to top the, the dom or something. Like, I, I don't know what it is exactly that they're afraid of, but it's, um, you know, I, I, you know, as, as someone who is, uh, typically dominant, um, I've often felt like, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a real dom because I don't sort of fit into the kind of, you know, aggressive and intense and um like it i feel like there's sort of a a dearth of different role models for kink identities and there's not and and certainly you know switch is something that isn't modeled very much Mm -hmm. and you know and also you know different types of of domination and different types of submission you know that we we tend to tend to see a very kind of narrow slice of of roles portrayed and i think you know people often feel like that's that's what being dominant is or that's what being submissive Mm -hmm. is and if you're not that then you know you're just dicking around you're not a real kingster or something and i Mm -hmm. and i found kink fairly unappealing from what i had witnessed because of those sort of classic roles Mm -hmm. um until we went to an event where we watched this couple and he was so incredibly tender with her and i saw that that was possible Mm -hmm. and 
like, you know, a switch went off in my head and, and Flick and I talked about it and started playing around with it and realized that was the kind of Dom that he was. And there's this, this tenderness in that, that, that I felt safe with. Because I've always had a real revulsion reaction to like aggressive men or like aggression in general, aggressive women as well. It just, I think with my anxiety, like it just triggers that and I'm just like, mm-hmm. nope. Um, and so I often have a real reaction to like the really domly dom types, you know, that I'm just like, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> But when when Flick and I started playing around with that dynamic a bit, I I was really into it, and and the type of of role that that he, that he brought to it, like in his personality and and a really specific connection we had, allowed me to 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 look at something that I thought wasn't for me. Um, yeah. Well, and I think when you when you do have examples of that, um, it's it can change your world because then it opens up all of these other different types of expression. And I think, you know, I think there's way more kinky people out there than we give people credit yeah. for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and what counts as kinky for one person is like you know every day for someone else. Yeah. Um, but. For me, I, you know, that's actually one of the biggest compliments I get when, when Warrior and I are playing together. So we were at Thunder of the Mountains, which is, it's in its 20th year. Um, it's a huge, huge kink event, 50,000 square feet dungeon, uh, which is incredible. Um, and so it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of different personalities and a lot of different types that go there. Um, and so what he and I do, we do a lot of grappling play and we do a lot of punching and we do a lot of very visceral, like, if we use toys, it's pretty rare um, because, you know, he does MMA and jujitsu and <laughs> I just try to keep up. Um, but it was interesting because someone came up to us and said, you know, I've never seen really good, a, a really good brat ever. And, and I, I was kind of like, you know, it was a compliment because they said, you know, wow, you know, you're really fighting back and you're really into it. And then at some point you just, you you surrendered which is what we do when we play is you know i just get to a point where i just get tired (laughs) 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 because you know we're knocking over things and people have to clear the way when we're playing but it's really nice because it really is about the energy exchange for us and it's about the push and the pull and the the give and the take and and both of us are very comfortable as switches and so we're both switching in you know mid scene sometimes because sometimes I'll see a look on his face that is very submissive and beautiful and giving and and everything and then you know a second later it's me doing that um and it was interesting to to have someone term it as as brat play because I didn't really view myself as submissive in that in that time that we were coming at it as equals mm-hmm. um, and really vying for control until one of us just finally gives up that control. And it's usually me because I'm very comfortable doing that. And that's that's how we converse um, physically with each other. And and it's a conversation and it's a, you know, it's play and it's, it's play to its fullest extent. But I love that people can then see that and see that being a top, being a bottom, seeing all those lines blurred, 
and we're still doing kinky shit together. Um, we're st- <laughs> you know, he's punching me in the ass and, you know, and I'm trying to, you know, get his fighting sticks away from him and then spank him with it. And, <laughs> um, and you know, it tends to be this thing, but I, I found it interesting that someone had to refer to that as being a brat. Um, because to me, that's presupposing the role. Well, and, and, um, you know, on, on the one hand, you know, people, people do kind of feel the need to, to, you know, label something. Right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and, and trying to label something that sounds like it was very fluid for you, um, you know, may not, you know, it's, it's going to have, you know, some inaccuracy to it. But on the other hand, it's really great that someone can, you know, kind of look at that and maybe like kind of draw a bit of inspiration for it. Right. So maybe. And, and have their own language. For exactly. It. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, and so, um, you know, uh, voyeurism is participation. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah, kind of creating their own experience out of what they yeah. observed from you. I think, I mm-hmm. think that's really, that's really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, I end up my, my last actual DS relationship. I, I won't engage in DS for the most part anymore. So DS, uh, dominant submissive relationship. Um, he let me go because I wasn't submissive enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of the theme that's kind of running through all of this is, are you enough? Yeah. Um, yes. And and all these really, really subtle messages that we get from these various communities that you're not enough. Yeah. Um, and and that really, really hurt me and, and threw me for a tailspin for a very long time because, you know, that was one of those organic relationships I had organically sort of submitted to him. But when he was assigning me things like, you know, he wanted me to pop the pimples on his back. Um, I really was not comfortable with that. That was not what I signed up for. <laughs> um, giving him massages on a surface that was going to hurt my back to do that. You know, I felt like anytime I brought up a concern, it was, you're not submissive enough. Uh. You need to just do this. And and so I, I came at it from a uh, sort of a consent yeah. I, I sort of place of, wait a minute, I didn't sign up to learn how to polish your boots. Yeah. Um, that kind of service, that kind of personal service um, really brings out the ugly perfectionist in me and uh, really brings up a lot of my old issues about not being good enough. Um, so if I don't do your boots correctly, um, and I love my boot blacks, I love them so much, but I am not a boot black. That is not how I identify. That is not what brings me pleasure in service. Mm-hmm. And to be sort of shoehorned into these roles, into these expectations by someone that I had thought sort of knew me better than that, um, you know, felt like someone was trying to tame me and, and, and force me to be someone that I'm not. And that just, I, I have not been able to go back to true DS types of dynamics. Now on the top end of things, I'm starting to explore that a lot more. And I find that some of my, some of the folks who are submissive to me really want to be forced to do something um, that would ordinarily not be in their repertoire, which is okay, but I don't like the idea of forcing you yeah. to do something. Like, either you like it or you don't. If you want to explore it, that's cool. And I, I want to be able to provide a structure for you to do that. But if that doesn't come natural to you, why should I be forcing you? Like, it's the whole forced <laughs> by thing, too. Like, that that really bothers me. 
Well, and I think, you know, it's as you talked about the consent, like if you didn't go into that relationship saying like, this is what I'm looking for, I want to serve you in whatever you want. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that was the kind of DS relationship you had, him deciding unilaterally, because he's the dom, that that's that's the way it's going to be is, is really exactly what I have found off putting about that particular community and that particular dynamic mm-hmm. because fuck that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I am, I am not a brat. Like, and I, I, I am, <laughs> I find it awesome that people identify as that and that is what speaks to them um, mm-hmm. for uh, an identity in that. Um, I do not have that speak to me at all, but like, fuck you if you want me to do something that I don't want to do. Like, <laughs> like right. I'm not a, Brad, I'm just like not going to do this crap because it's bullshit. Well, you know, I, um, I want I want to jump in, and I I feel like there there are ways that he could ask a partner to do something that they didn't want to do um, differently, right? So him him trying to dom you into doing something that you know wasn't part of your submissive expression that's that's a it's a little bit fucked up and it's a bit abusive abusive. and it is and you know whereas i feel like um if he'd said um you know i know this this doesn't really do anything for you um but you know i I wonder if we could experiment with it a little bit if you'd feel comfortable you know maybe Mm -hmm. just you know uh, pushing through this because you know i i feel like this is something that would you know that really um the, you know, they'd really kind of, um, zing me in, in that area. Right. And so then mm-hmm. it's different. It's a negotiation, not, right. hi- not him, um, you know, using his title or role as mm-hmm. leverage and using mm-hmm. your insecurities against you. Yeah. Like, right. You know, you're not submissive enough, yeah. like taking yeah. something that he probably knew was something you dealt with. Right. And wielding that. As a cudgel against you, um, as opposed to the kind of cudgels that you might have consented to him. <laughs> right. Use this cudgel, not that cudgel. Well, and it's funny because I think all of my DS sort of experiences up to that point, you know, certainly had these elements of, you know, yeah, I'm asking you to do something that you don't really want to do. But, you know, I think my experiences up to that point, because they had been all long distance, um, had more of that negotiation element to it because we weren't there up close and personal to see each other and to see how I was reacting, you know, when I'm being given this order and things like that. So I think there was a lot more um, room for me to assert myself. Right. And I love assertive submissives. I love them so much because they have found this thread of, of strength and retained this thread of strength. I, um, but I have seen some folks, especially in some master slave relationships. And I, I have seen some really fantastic master slave relationships that are 24 seven or, you know, more like, you know, 18, five, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I've seen it, the ones that are the most successful are the ones that leave room for that check-in that yeah. leave room for, uh, that renegotiation, you could have been together for 20 years and you're always, you know, on your knees when he gets home from work, you know, type of thing. Um, and I've seen that work out well, but you've had knee surgery, so you're not going to be on your knees the whole time. Um, and you come up with something different that still 
hits at the goal of what you're trying to accomplish and hits at that, that service and that submission um, and that dominance, but you can be flexible with it. The people, the ones that are the mo- the least successful and the most borderline abusive, and I do a lot of work in teaching. This is actually how I got started in teaching was actually teaching about the differences between BD, you know, happy, healthy BDSM and BDSM that um, are abuse that's disguised as BDSM. Um, I did a lot of training in the Denver area. We're having some, um, this is sorry, this is such an aside, Um, (laughs) but but, you know, we were having some issues with some um, serial rapists in the community who were using BDSM as a means of controlling and abusing other people. (laughs) And, and there was no recourse for that. So I started with the city attorney's office. I expanded to the Denver district attorney's office. I worked with the Colorado organization for victim assistance and, and taught at their statewide conference um, just to get that information out there that you know just because someone's getting hit does not mean it is abuse but conversely just because someone says it's consensual doesn't mean that it actually is Um, and and applying those power and control dynamics because that's really our currency in the BDSM world is power and control that is that is our bargain for exchange and So if that's your bargain for exchange, you should also retain the right to modify the terms of your agreement. Um, And and that's very lawyerly of me. But in talking to other attorneys, that's how I can get that through to their head about how these power dynamics work, that this is bargained for, this is agreed to, this is negotiated. And where you have uh, really bad relationships are the ones that are firm and, and inflexible on the terms of those agreements. And that's where you really start getting into some of the more abusive type of dynamics. It doesn't mean that if you're if you're solid on this is my rule that that is per se abusive. It's not. But it is, you know, it it starts rolling down that road if you're ignoring the other person's needs and and feedback mm-hmm. to push your own agenda. And I, and I think that's where we get into with the domly doms and, you know, and these caricatures that we have of these role models. You know, they're not even really mo- role models. They are they are cartoons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and avatars of of what we actually truly do. Um and, and there are ways to do, you know, really subtle DS throughout your day to keep that connection alive. Um, and there are folks that, you know, just prefer to, you know, be out in the scene and, and do their thing only once, once a week. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make them any less than anybody else. But there's always this specter of, you have to be a real submissive and and the real submissive thing is the thing that i think the community itself really enforces and and creates a subtle sheen of of coercion sometimes yeah of or, you know that's a really so right and that exactly and that is a really low blow yeah um to someone especially if they're just starting to explore and 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 all they have for those role models are those cartoons and avatars of of what it is a submissive is supposed to be yeah and that you know there is a lot of shaming about like not being kinky enough not being you know whatever enough because you you know only go this far or you just have a different intensity you don't want to do it 24/7 um you know it's just something you do occasionally but you're very happy in your vanilla life most of the time um so there's a lot of pressure 
like even and pressure that we've we've experienced even within a group that we have thought you know was a safe respectful place um those sort of ugly things have cropped up um where you know memes being shared that really were essentially you know date rape kind of jokes um but were immediately like no it's consensual non-consent and it's like well without context that's kind of date rape and they're just being this like you don't get the joke you know you're not um, yeah like and you're not a real king because non-consent is always a great joke yeah and that was the thing and it was because it was presented without context to me like that you know that's not funny that's not safe and and the doms in the group just were um were domly doms and and just you know went about how the rest of us weren't kinky enough. And I ended up just leaving the group because, you know, I just, I knew I wouldn't be respected. And I just thought, nope, this isn't for me. Yeah. So it's really easy to, to chase out people who, you know, have boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and, you know, who are also trying to, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, having boundaries and protecting yourself and watching out for yourself because who else is going to, um, you know, no one else is in that dynamic other than you and this other person. It doesn't matter whether you're poly, it doesn't matter, whatever you're engaged with this person. That is your dynamic. No one else can advise you as to what to do for that dynamic. And no one else is seeing what you're seeing. And so when red flags pop up for us, you know, there should be some room for us to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and even out, you know, even in context, consensual non-consent can still be a scary place for a lot of people because yeah. it is such a narrow edge. Um, it is, you know, it is on the razor's edge of edge play. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. I yeah, think some of, some of these domly doms were insisting that uh, consensual non-consent wasn't edge play. <laughs> and it's like, you can't do it at the dungeons here. I mean, maybe it's different where they live, but like, unless, <laughs> unless, like, I'm not even sure you can do it at all, but I think unless you've cleared it with the DM, um, mm-hmm. which I still always think of. Dungeons and Dragons. Whenever I uh, <laughs> yeah. hear them talking about the DM, sometimes that's like, oh, not I, too far off. Go <laughs> yeah, so talk to the DM, and he'll have you roll a saving throw. <laughs> yeah, I would love that so much. Oh my god! Wouldn't oh no, I have the- an idea for a scene. <laughs> oh, and you get to like roll for like yes! the paddles. And- <laughs> yes. Oh my god! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Okay, we're, we're doing this. Okay, I'm coming up to Vancouver. We're gonna do this. We're we're doing this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Holy cow! That's awesome. Um, but I think you know we're, your kinky we're, win. <laughs> we're we're getting a little distracted here. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So I think we've covered kink pretty well, um, <laughs> and come up with some great ideas. <laughs> and if and if any of y'all like have any like things that you've ever done this with dice and bdsm please uh please send us your information because <laughs> yes we're, we're yes really we interested. definitely want to be in touch <laughs> dnds dnds <laughs> yeah so when we were first talking about this you know you you talked about your experience as being half mexican and things you've experienced with with that sort of again being in that sort of intersection between between two identities 
So, yeah, and it, I, I'm kind of nodding here because, you know, God, where do I even start with that? Because I I am half Mexican, half white, and the Mexican side of my family is like more like fifth or sixth generation. We come from the southwest Colorado, northern New Mexico area. That's where that half of the family has always been. And okay. Um, it happened to be that the white end of my jeans, uh, the rose part of my jeans, uh, won out over the Mexican. Um, so I have hazel eyes and really light skin and my hair is going gray way faster than the Mexican half of my family does. Um, freckles, all, you know, the whole deal. So I walk down the street, you're going to think I'm white. My last name is white. Um, but my culture, everything that I was raised with is Mexican. Mm -hmm. Um, that's where the Catholicism comes from is from the Mexican half of my family. You know, we have green chili at every meal. We, um, the language did not pervade into my family because, um, it was really popular in Southern Colorado, Northern New Mexico, the Southwest in general, to really kind of punish the Spanish out of you. Yeah. Um, and, and so my mom's generation was taught specifically to not speak Spanish. So she grew up not really being able to communicate with her grandmother. And, um, and so that end of the family, you know, that specific generation was taught English only. And so very assimilated in, in many ways, but not so in other ways, because Southern Colorado in particular has really kept that, that Mexican identity and that sort of indigenous identity, because depending on which map you look at Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, we used to be part of Mexico. Um, so that is the heritage that I grew up with. And, and that's my people that, you know, um, I grew up in a town that was like 40% uh, Latino. Uh, my high school is 56% Latino, and I was the only Latina to graduate um, top 10, I think, of my of my graduating class, mm-hmm. um, and which is really saying something because it is such a big part of where I'm from. It's such a big part of our city. You know, we're, we ho- host a chili festival every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, those roots are such a big part of who I am. But when I was growing up, my mom... Um, there was a really kind of a fluent, uh, shopping center up here in Denver that she and I would go to and she would just dress normal. Uh, she'd usually look like, you know, just a normal mom and I would dress a little bit preppy and we would go in and we would actually like test these stores and she would consistently be followed around the store. She would consistently, um, be, told a higher price. We went to uh, a grocery store and she was quoted a higher price for chicken than I was. Um, oh. it, really egregious stuff. And she and I would, would play, uh, you know, really truly play with those expectations. Um, and then I would come in and, and I would be, tr- you know, not followed in the store and treated really nice and she would be treated really poorly. And so then we'd come back and talk to the management about what we experienced. Um, so we were kind of our own little like investigative crew when I was growing up. Um, and so we'd really deliberately play upon those expectations. But now that I'm grown, um, I feel like I constantly have to justify the fact that I am, Mexican American, um, that I'm Chicana. And, um, 
I used to work for a group um, that runs Hispanic leadership conferences for youth. And I remember those kids would be looking at me like, why the hell are you here? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so then I would start talking Spanish. My Spanish has been very low lately. I have not had a whole lot of practice, but I would start speaking in Spanish and I would start saying things with a, with a Spanish accent so that they would really get the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm one of you. Yeah. Um, but as we kind of progress and, and with some of the current events that are happening, especially when we look at, you know, building a border wall and all of this stuff that is really impacting the Latino community, I need to be very hyper vigilant about the fact that when I speak up, it is going to be read as white. Um, that even though my, I have not faced the level of discrimination that my mom has, um, or that my grandfather has, you know, getting passed over for promotions and things like that, even if he was the top scorer on a test. Um, I have not had to face that nearly to the level that they have. I have faced it, but not to the level that they have. And so I need to be very conscious of stepping back and allowing those who, who face this on a more real everyday basis to, to chime up. Um, and to have their chance to talk and to have their chance to be heard um, and not be talked over by me. But it also like I'm, I'm left yet again in a situation yeah. where I feel like I'm not enough. I am not brown enough to be Latina. I am not white enough to be white. Um, and, and nor do I necessarily want to be. And I've heard from folks who are like half white, half Native American, you know, or First Nation. And how they feel, um, kind of straddling that line all yeah. the time, where we just feel like we're not, we're not enough for any one community. Yeah, and specifically the community that we were raised with. Yeah, and and uh, I've I've heard very much from people who uh, you know who are of, of mixed heritage who um, who do or who are more visibly um, mm-hmm. you know uh, minority who when they're with their their white relatives, they get treated much better. And, you know, and like, they, they kind of like borrow the white privilege from, from those people. It's, you know, it's kind of extended to them. And, you know, whereas, um, you know, uh, when they're, when they're on their own or with other, with other first nations people, you know, just the, um, the amount of suspicion and, and disdain that they're, they're kind of met with routinely. Mm-hmm. And, I think there have been a lot of problematic white people who appropriate <laughs> uh, culture in order to to do that. So in Mexican American culture, you know, appropriating Dia de los Muertos and and yeah. you know, sugar skulls and yeah. that whole imagery is a really big deal. Cinco de Mayo, don't even get me started on Cinco de Mayo because Cinco de Mayo, you know, like I know the actual origins of Puebla, Mexico, and and that's our sister city from where I grew up. So I grew up with those stories and knowing the reasoning behind Cinco de Mayo. Um, And so when I see Cinco de Mayo celebrations with, you know, all white folks wearing sombreros, I get really pissed off because it's like you got, you know, first of all, you don't even understand the whole origin of, of this holiday and why we celebrate it. And then number two, you don't even care enough to have actual Mexicans at your celebration or, you know, understand what those symbols actually mean to us. Um, Dia de los Muertos, a lot of people have been really pushing back on that lately. Yeah. So I think it makes it a little bit hard for us to be 
true advocates within those communities. At the same time, I try to use that privilege to bring awareness to that, but it's, it's still hard because I still feel really icky yeah. <laughs> doing that. I feel like I'm appropriating myself sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds really difficult. And, and I think you also, um, you mentioned how, um, in sexual situations, how your race can actually get fetishized. Um, oh God. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and the, uh, say something in Spanish and, you know, and a lot of the kind of sexual stereotypes around race can really become kind of, you know, icky and intrusive. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's, you know, there's a whole Madonna whore complex. Yeah. Right, um, yeah. and, and, you know, there are some very deep, some, you know, symbolic things for that for me. But I get a lot of, ooh, you know, you're a hot mamacita. Like, if I have to hear that one more time, I am going to drill, you know, a nail through someone's head. You know, just like I can't, I cannot stand that. And they say something sexy to me in Spanish. I don't face it nearly as much as um, I think folks who are black in the community or Asian in the community um, tend to. But I see that fetishized a lot. And, you know, one of the first topics that comes up for someone who's black is, you know, is race play of some kind, you know, number one, why assume that they're into that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I, I just find it really abhorrent. And I, my more successful kink relationships have been with people of color, because I think we just get each other. And we get the fact that we're not here to fetishize, you know, our, our backgrounds and, and our families and our structure, you know, our, are of how we engage with the world. We're here to have fun together and to contribute to each other. And, and I try in all of my dealings to make it a very person centered um, rather than stereotype centered. And unfortunately, especially the kink community, I think sometimes can over fetishize race um, (laughs) fetishize it at all, but then to a point where it just becomes really like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and why would you assume that about this person? And, you know, I think on a more subtle level, and actually Kevin Patterson yeah. talks really, oh, I love Kevin so much. Um, and he teaches me so much. And he he is able, I think, to really demonstrate to me um, times where I should be jumping into the conversation and times where I really need to sit back and let other folks um, have be heard. Um, I love, I love the work he does in this area. And we talk about this a lot about, you know, the fetishization of race, um, and culture. Um, I watch it sometimes too, even, um, when I'm belly dancing or something like that, because that can also be appropriative as well. Um, so it's something I want to be very mindful of no matter what I'm doing. Um, but unfortunately I think it permeates in the kink world a, a little less, than it does in other places, but you still see it in the LGBT community. You see it in the poly community where it's like you see someone of color and suddenly you have to make their color the topic of conversation. Yes. Well, I I think there's, um, you know, I think white people don't necessarily, um, have any appreciation for, um, how charged those things could be. And so, um, they, they don't, they don't 
approach it with the same degree of negotiation and consent mm-hmm. that they would something that is potentially that triggering and mm-hmm. has that, you know, that kind of history. Um, so, you know, some, uh, some people are, you know, are very into it. And, but I feel like it's, you know, like you said, like making those assumptions, like, you know, appreciate that this, this could be really damaging to somebody to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to thrust this on them without any discussion or negotiation. Well, and, and really exhausting too. Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the nice parts about kink is that you get to turn your brain off for a little bit. Yeah. You know, if you're on the submissive end of things, you, 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 your job is to, is to do what you're asked. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and um, it was absolutely one of the most appealing things about kids, right. You know, is because it's I'm a control freak, and oh and, hell yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, just the classic perfectionist type A. You know, and to just like be like, here is a task. I must do the task. You know, it's like do do do. Yeah, it's right. it's quite freeing, and to, and to have to be constantly on guard in that situation. Um, you know for your identity and, and for like these unexpected attacks um, that people may just from complete ignorance, not even understand is an attack. And it's much like, you know, grabbing someone in a chokehold without asking for consent. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that, that might be just fine, but it, you know, there's a good chance that this is a really um, triggering experience for someone. And, And if you haven't talked about that, you should never, ever, ever do that. Well, and I, I find you know, for me, it's like very similar to like mommy play. Like, don't make me do something that I have to do all the time. Like I am in mommy <laughs> mode all the time. Well, first of all, I don't even like the word mommy. I, my kids call me mom or mama and that's it. <laughs> like, I don't even yeah. like the word. Um, but don't put me in a position where I'm having to now do exactly in, and be in the same mode that I'm in in my everyday life. Like kink is supposed to be like a really special place for me to go to for release, it's fantasy world. It's, you know, it's all of these different things, all these different constructs. It's a safe place for me to really just have my, my bodily and soul needs met. Um, don't make me do something that I have to do out in the rest of the world. That's not okay. And I think for folks, uh, for people of color to, you know, assume that they're going to be down with race play or anything else, I think it takes it, it, it deprives them of that safe place where they can just be who they are. Um, and they can just have those needs, those bodily and soul needs met, um, in that space and time and, and to hit them with the same exhausting bullshit that they have to deal with out in the real world. How is that a benefit to them? What are they actually going to get out of that? Um, and, you know, and I think too, that folks, um, sexually speaking, you know, you're going to run over a bunch of, you know, assumed biases and, and things like that, you know, in your relationship as a whole. And so I think the most successful relationships are going to be the ones that are, that are aware and conscious of that and, and have a means by which to encounter those, those problems as they come. But it's not very fair to fetishize race because, you're just putting that person right back in the same spot that they're in every single day. And it's exhausting. And it's not fair. Um, 
And I think you could probably say that for for a bunch of different things. But yeah, like I yeah. I don't want to be a mommy right now because I am a mom all the time. <laughs> you know, like, ooh, let's do lawyer play. No, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'd like to not be a lawyer for a little while. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's also a lack of creativity, too, I think, you know, that you're going for some low hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's, what's, what's the most obvious thing that I could fetishize at this point? Right. And, and let me reinforce to you that this is, this is what I see you for. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, that I see your, your skin color and, and, and yeah, we should be seeing skin, skin color, but then not making assumptions based on that. Yes. Exactly. Um, so, uh, harsh segue. <laughs> um, <laughs> just cause we know that we've got, some some limited right. time here and we're definitely it's like we chose too many interesting, <laughs> interesting things to talk about yeah. we'll, we'll have to do a yeah, part I mean, two sometime well i mean fitting in is a, is a broad to- uh, topic and yeah. you know um and you know ironically one of the places that i've had kind of the uh, the most stress about fitting in is in the polyamorous community mm-hmm. and you know and stress about you know am i uh, am I too slutty? Am, mm-hmm. you know, is, um, you know, is, is sort of my relationship style going to be off-putting to people, you know, and, and so, so, um, we, we kind of talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, often, especially in sort of their public face and how they, you know, kind of present themselves in like articles and interviews, uh, polyamorous people often, really try to kind of uh de-emphasize the sexuality yeah of polyamory you know oh it's not about sex it's about you know the love and relationships yeah and you know we and we we talk more about this than we do about sex and and so you know as as someone who does a lot of recreational sex um you know i i find those messages you know pretty alienating um, and, you know, and, and yet, um, a lot of the people that we, that we do meet, that we talk to, there's, there's so much more overlap between, uh, polyamory and kink and polyamory and swinging and, you know, and, and so, um, it's, it's often, it's hard to know, like, you know, how much do I out myself to these, uh, the, to this poly meetup group and yeah. stuff. Well, and then it becomes the dirty little secret. Um, and I, and I definitely face that because I do, I probably do more polyamory teaching than I do, um, kink or, or anything else. Um, I tend to just get booked more (laughs) in in poly spaces and for poly talks, um, probably because of the conflict resolution background. Um, but I see that a lot where, you know, I'm seeing a, a, a re-emphasis on loving, committed relationships. And I, I view commitment a variety of ways, um, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and it's interesting because I do have a partner. I like even calling him a partner is really, really a broad term. Um, but I have someone who's been in my life since I was in college. We were fuck buddies in college and we just discovered like, Oh my God, we actually really like each other a lot and we want to stay in touch. And we've stayed in touch for 20 years and it is, it was interesting because when I saw him finally back in December, we sat down for, for dinner and he was talking about how he wants to 
go out and save the world, you know, in this corner of Afghanistan or whatever else. And I was kind of giving him some shit like, well, you know, you're probably never going to settle down and into a relationship. He's like, well, I'm in a committed (laughs) relationship. I'm with you. I always keep coming back to you. And even though we only see each other once every few years and we talk, you know, over text and email when we can, um, I found that to be a really interesting definition of commitment for him that, you know, and I, I was, I was really just touched and kind of got teary eyed when he said that because it is true. We've been a part of each other's lives for 20 years. We revolve around each other and he does always end up coming back to me, you know, he dates someone and I'm still in his life and I'm the, I'm a constant in his life, but it's more than just a friendship. It's deeper than that. And so how can we possibly qualify that? I, he doesn't, he's not in my Google calendar anywhere. It's not like, you know, I'm having play dates with him that I have to, you know, talk to the other partners about or anything else. We just kind of catch things as we can. And so on the surface, it looks very casual and it looks very like, you know, this is just for sex only type of thing, but like, no, we, we're, we're close. And how do you define that? And how does that fit into the whole polyamory model? Does that make him polyamorous? Does that, you know, Mm -hmm. and he was saying, you know, if I start dating someone, you know, it's going to be with clear expectation that you're in my life. And this is where you are in my life. And if that's not okay, then we need to, they need to get, they need to get stepping. Um, and yet we're never going to be married. We're never going to live in the same city. We're never going to have the same level of commitment that I do with warrior or with my husband. Um, but is it fair to say that that's not a poly relationship? I think it is. Um, Mm -hmm. because he, he has declared he loves me and that I'm a part of his life and that whoever he dates is going to have to accept that. So in many ways, he's very poly aligned, um, even if he doesn't identify that as himself anyway. Yeah. No, it's, it's really true. And, and, um, you know, I, I think often there's a temptation to exchange one status quo for another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. To, and, and, um, I think that can happen in polyamory or other open relationships where it's like, um, you know, it, it should be like this and our partners should be like this. And, you know, and these are, you know, this is, this, this is what it's going to look like. And, um, and, you know, and so often the polyamory that we see, um, in media is, uh, is, I guess, kind of like polyfidelity. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like, you know, this is, it, it's, it's like, it's often monogamy plus one. Or, you know, monogamy times two, um, in, in the case of quads. And, you know, and I, I don't, I don't really know that anybody that I know in polyamory fits into those those molds that's a really narrow standard and it's not the way it always used to be it used to be that the polyfidelitist folks were like seen as the freaks <laughs> of why would you want to close this you know it's, it should be open it should be you know everyone coming and going as they need to yeah and that didn't used to be the standard but for i think i think you know back, going back to some of the the bisexuality thing of we're not promiscuous you know don't yeah, even we could do a whole new thing. podcast about my my issues with the term promiscuous um and how it's <laughs> misapplied especially to women um but and and there's no one definition of what that is it's just sort of like a you know it when you see it um yeah. but I, it gets 
I think we see a, you know, we want to be accepted. So therefore, we're going to align ourselves closer to what society already has um, Mm -hmm. as more of a stepping stone to make ourselves acceptable. So we see that in the LGBT community where we see folks who used to have, you know, like, especially uh, some of my lovely gay Leathermen um, who um, have all these multiple play relationships and everything else. And there's a lot of pressure on them to be very heteronormative. Um, yeah. uh, you know, you need to make your relationship look like the dominant culture in order to be accepted. And it's a really sad statement that internally we have aligned ourselves with this mainstream that itself is just a stupid standard. Um, it's a default mode at best. And so why should we be getting closer to the default mode when really all of these different identities, all of these different things are about creating who you really are and about really defining that and establishing that and, and being self-actualized. Um, and, and we see that pressure in the poly community as well, where, you know, you see these closed triads. Um, that for me are just like, wow, I can't participate in that. Um, I'm way too free spirited and I'm way too, um, I, if I feel a a certain dynamic come up with someone, I want to be able to pursue that. That's the whole reason I became poly was to be able to not have artificial limitations on how I feel about people. Um, and I, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just like, it's, it's a classic respectability thing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, if we, if we do this, then we're more likely to be accepted. And, and it's like, oh, but we're not, you know, we're not this big bunch of sluts. We're, we're like about, we're about the love. And, um, like we have noticed that we, you know, will, will take Iris to events, but we certainly don't talk about, you know, the group sex we had, you know, with other people (laughs) on the weekend, like with our vanilla friends. (laughs) Right. Like, you know, so like we, we do the respectable, like, oh yeah, but you know, this is, this is a girlfriend. This is someone who is, who is special, who matters, like la la la. Um, but you know, don't. Don't talk about our anniversary orgy or. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, there's, there's a lot of that that happens because it's like, oh, well, this is an acceptable way to, to be open. Right. And I, and I, you know, it's interesting too, because, you know, I had mentioned about um, Mexican American and growing up in Southern Colorado and how there was all this pressure on my mom's generation to assimilate. And so this is the very same thing. This is assimilation. This is, you know, because what was happening back then, um, even though Zoot Suit riots and all that stuff were happening because that was an awesome piece of our history. Um, there was also, you know, there was face powder being, uh, sold so that you could make your face a little bit more white. Um, so, are uh, calling yourself Spanish instead of Mexican or Mexican American mm-hmm. or Hispanic or whatever term was was popular back then or least popular back then? Um, and and I still see that in some parts of my family where there are folks who insist that we are Spanish, and I'm like, you realize that we're from New Mexico, right? Like, um, that's not Spain, <laughs> and and yeah. we are very far removed from our Spanish ancestors. And, and there was this whole move to reclaim, uh, and, and make ourselves more white to be more accepted. And, and it's, it is a really, it, it's a really shameful thing. 
And I, and well, and frankly, it does come from shame. It comes from the shame yeah. of, of being authentic and, and being able to stand out for who you really are and find that acceptable because we have so many communities that reject us when we are actually authentic to who we are. So I feel like yeah. there's always a part of me that is vanilla in every single space that I'm in. That has to, you know, that has to make myself acceptable to everyone else. So maybe in the bi community, I'm not talking as much about the poly. Um, and, and in fact, sometimes get shouted down and hushed if I do. Um, all these shame responses that come out of it. And that's definitely what I'm kind of here to do is to, is to highlight those things. Um, because a lot of this comes out of fear of being rejected and fear of, you know, and we certainly don't want to derail anyone's movement, but at the same time, don't leave us behind either. Yeah. I guess the question is, where do you find your community when you, when you always feel like you're like, you're not enough? You know, and it, it's interesting because I've, I've said this a lot where I've been noticing, especially over the last few years, that I feel like my home community is the geek community. Yeah. Um, and yeah. because I think in part because you can connect with people. If you like Game of Thrones and I like Game of Thrones, we have shit we can talk about. Um, <laughs> if I like Star Trek and, and you really love Star Trek The Next Generation, we can talk for hours about that stuff. I think when, when you go to actual interests rather than practices, um, yeah. you have more areas of commonality and I'm, and probably a little bit more, um, opportunity to really be seen as a whole person, as a thoughtful person, um, who has ideas about these topics. And, you know, and I, I'm on the board of a geek organization that runs cons and I'm really proud of the cons that we run because we bring up conversations like this all the time where there's differences of, of opinion about how you talk about polyamory, for example, in a sci-fi novel. Um, yeah, yeah. and we can have those conversations and, and they get as deep and as rich as these ones, but it really hit home for me when Denver pride one year was the same year or same weekend as Denver comic-con. And I spent my entire weekend at Denver Comic-Con because I felt like this is my tribe. These are, yeah. these are my people and, and it's, it's joyful. And even though like within the, the geek community, you still have your, your squabbles over whether, you know, you're really truly, you know, a Whovian. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, I, geek purity test. Oh yeah, there's definitely geek purity test, but I don't think there's a rejection by the entire community if you don't fit one narrow definition. Um, yes. I think there's still room for you. Um, if yeah. you're a magic novice, you know, like I am, I, I don't play much magic, but I'm really bad at it. And, I, but I love it. And, you know, there's still a place for you, uh, that is welcoming and, and where you can find people who are at your same level and, and want to treat you like an equal. And it's fun to see the intersections. Like we, you know, finding the, the group from life on the swing set mm -hmm. and, and going to desire one of the, the first things that like absolutely sold me on the trip was when I found out that they turned the cowboy theme into space cowboys and did kind of a serenity, <gasps> um, you know, and I like, I just about jizzed myself. Like <laughs> I almost um, did too, just now. <laughs> because it just like, it's like, these, these are my people. And, and even, you know, on Twitter, like Astroglide, the lube company are huge supernatural fans. And like, just, you know, seeing, seeing all the, the supernatural tweets that this lube company does that I, you know, I'm just like, 
this this intersecting Venn diagram of my interests, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and like, there's just these these really kind of amazing moments of of where the two things really connect, mm-hmm. where they intersect. And I'm very lucky. Denver, I think, has a very. Um, I think we have more overlap in in our communities here in Denver than I've seen in other cities, but. But yet the one uniting tie that I have for a lot of these is, is the geek community. And so that's why, you know, like I host house parties that are geek themed, but it's like, you know, it's lifestyle friendly, it's LGBTQ friendly, you know, anyone can show up because we're here to celebrate who we are um, and mm-hmm. to have a place where, where we can do that. And, you know, where you might not be a big gamer, but someone else is, and we have plenty that we can talk about and we have plenty that we can learn from each other about. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I just think the geek community in general has become so large and so expansive that I think it's much easier to be out as geeky and then to layer all of these other things on top of that. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah. it just becomes yet another facet of your identity. Um, it's like building characters in D and D. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the wet coast, Janet. Thank yeah. you. Can you just remind us again of, uh, your Twitter and your website? Sure. Um, so my Twitter name and my, uh, and my Instagram, you know, I'm active on Instagram too, uh, sharp sweet Bella. And then you can find my blog at sharpsweetbella.com where I talk a lot about uh, pretty much this type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you guys so much. So thanks for listening. Please help us boost our visibility by rating us and leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It means a lot to us and helps us get into the ear holes of more listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WetCoastCat, at SiriusFlick, at OnTheWetCoast. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash OnTheWetCoast. Email us, contact at OnTheWetCoast.com. You can read Kat's blog at OnTheWetCoast.com or LifeOnTheSwingSet.com under the blog heading, you guessed it, On The Wet Coast. And you can hear a lot more of Kat by buying the audiobook of Cooper S. Beckett's novel, A Life Less Monogamous, available at alifelessmonogamous.com. Enter code WETCOAST at checkout to save 10% or at audible.com. And check out other awesome sex-positive podcasts at on the... Yeah. <laughs> I almost got so it. <laughs> check out other awesome sex-positive podcasts on the Swingset Network at swingset.fm. All right, so we can stop recording. Hi, I'm Dr. Liz from sexpositivepsych.com, and you're listening to a Swingset podcast at swingset.fm.